Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. A reading rainbow. Fear. Trump in the White House by Bob Woodward Chapter 1 A meeting was finally arranged at Mueller's office. I'm going to tell you about my conversation with the President of the United States on the subject of testimony, Dowd said. Well, Mueller said, I guess that's it. And I'm telling you, Bob, the President really wanted to testify and answer a few questions. He just made something up. That's his nature. People call it Britain. They call it Great Britain. They call it, they used to call it England, different parts. This is horse shit, Dowd thought. How did you come here? Come here. You're not nervous, right? <laughs> Speaks perfect English. Dowd knew it was bullshit, but that was one of the Trump paradoxes. People make up stories. This whole thing about uh, flipping, they call it. I know all about flipping for 30, 40 years. I've been watching flippers. You're a fucking liar. That was the problem. The failing New York Times by an anomalous, really an anomalous, gutless coward. Dowd knew this was self-delusion, total bullshit. I think that Puerto Rico was an incredible, unsung success. Dowd was aware that he had illustrated the president was clearly disabled. John, I understand, Mueller said. I told you he was an idiot. I told you he was a goddamn dumbbell. What are we dealing with that idiot for? This is Intercepted. I'm Jeremy Scahill coming to you from the offices of The Intercept in New York City, and this is episode 65 of Intercepted. But it's all working out. And just remember, what you're seeing and what you're reading is not what's happening. And I'll tell you... Well, we are back in the saddle again on this show, and holy shit, so much has happened since we last gathered. We have had more indictments from the Robert Mueller Trump Russia probe. George Papadopoulos got a light pat on the wrist for lying to federal agents, 14 days in jail and community service. We have people doing life in prison for nonviolent drug offenses in this country, but apparently lying to federal agents gets you two weeks at Club Fed. Good to know. We had this bullshit anonymous op-ed in the New York Times by a reprehensible extreme right-winger posing as a defender of the republic because he and some colleagues 
they say, are trying to stop Trump from messing up their glorious consolidation of a toxic, dangerous Republican agenda. That person ain't no hero or whistleblower. That person is part of the problem. And meanwhile, Donald Trump appears poised to ensure that his legacy haunts this country for generations to come with the nomination of a radical, fanatical, anti-woman, anti-worker, pro-racial profiling perjurer to a lifetime appointment on the Supreme Court. If Brett Kavanaugh is confirmed, the Supreme Court is basically going to be like the commander's council in The Handmaid's Tale. My handmaid is about to reach her expiration date. And she wasn't that much fun to begin with. How's yours? Oh, she is proven fruitful. And let's not forget ever that the genocidal U.S.-Saudi war against Yemen is continuing. And millions of Yemenis have either died, are starving, or are withering away from preventable diseases. There are still hundreds of immigrant children separated from their families by this administration. We understand that there was also this meeting with mutinous generals from Venezuela who had this uh, clatch with Trump and his people, apparently to discuss a coup against Nicolas Maduro. There's a new CIA drone base being built. Gina Haspel, who was deeply involved with the torture of prisoners after 9-11, is at the helm now officially of the CIA. We hear almost nothing anymore about her or what she's doing at the agency. I'm bringing all of this up because the U.S. empire is still the U.S. empire, even if Donald Trump is president. I actually agreed with uh, former President Barack Obama when he recently said that Trump is not the problem himself, but he's a symptom of the problem. You know, one of the grand lies that is being pushed by these never-Trumpers, by some establishment Republicans, and yes, by the Democrats, is that Trump represents some grand departure, some dangerous veering away from the norms and the ideas that underpin the story of American greatness. Nowhere was this on greater display than at the funeral of Senator John McCain. We come to celebrate an extraordinary man, a warrior, a statesman, a patriot embodied so much that is best in America. The endless tributes to him were a lie-filled festival celebrating the insidious mythology of American greatness. McCain was a war criminal. John McCain was a racist. He was a staunch militarist. He was the embodiment of an empire politician who believed that American lives were worth more than the lives of others. Now, it was taboo to say any of this about John McCain during the fictional storytelling Lollapalooza that followed his death. It was, to paraphrase Barack Obama, a symptom of a nation built on lies. Lies which, if you reject them, you're considered an extremist, an enemy of America. The horrid stain that is Donald Trump's presidency has opened a space for the most intellectually dishonest power brokers in the American empire 
to fillet themselves and each other as they dream of a day when a good guy like George W. Bush, a mass murderer, or Bill Clinton, a belligerent warmonger who spent eight years attacking the poor and building up the prison industrial complex, can return decorum to America. Trump is definitely an anomaly, and he does indeed pose his own unique threats to peace in the United States and around the world, but largely he's an anomaly in circumstance and style. But more than that, Trump is actually a mirror placed before the American empire, and a mirror that all the responsible adults want smashed, lest they have to face what it really means that their precious system, where war criminals can be rehabilitated instantly by hugging Michelle Obama or painting pictures or passing Michelle Obama a piece of candy at a funeral for another war criminal, produced this monster currently residing between his golf outings at the White House. And here's a cold hard fact. The Trump regime has more in common with all those presidents and former officials and others hanging out at McCain's funeral than it does with ordinary people in this country and around the world. Here's a perfect example of what I'm talking about. Earlier this week, President Trump's national security advisor, John Bolton, gave a major address at his second home, the Federalist Society, to announce a major attack on the International Criminal Court based in The Hague. Now, that's the court that should have jurisdiction over war crimes, including those committed by the United States, its leaders, military personnel, spies, and others suspected of war crimes, not just for the former Yugoslavia, not just for Rwanda, all nations. Now, John Bolton has always been a ferocious extremist opponent of international law and specifically of the International Criminal Court. And what appeared to spur this speech now by John Bolton was the fact that the ICC is said to be investigating the U.S. detention and torture program in Afghanistan. The United States will use any means necessary to protect our citizens and those of our allies from unjust prosecution by this illegitimate court. We will not cooperate with the ICC. We will provide no assistance to the ICC. And we certainly will not join the ICC. We will let the ICC die on its own. After all, for all intents and purposes, the ICC is already dead to us. Now on its surface, John Bolton's speech sounds like that of a defiant despot openly flouting international law and justice. It's being discussed in some media outlets as an extreme position that the Trump administration is taking. Now, rhetorically, maybe that is true. But let's be honest here. The U.S. has never respected international law or international justice. War crimes are acts committed by others. War crimes are acts committed by America's enemies. What we do is justified and sometimes okay, we make mistakes. The U.S. view boils down to this. Our mistakes are not really crimes. Even if we kill an entire family, or we blow up a school bus, or we bomb a hospital, or we invade countries. Had the ICC existed during the Second World War, America's enemies would no doubt be eager to find the United States and its allies culpable for war crimes for the bombing campaigns over Germany and Japan. 
Now, I'm not sure that Bolton is actually correct about this, that there would have been a push to prosecute Americans after World War II. But let there be no doubt, the U.S., its military commanders, presidents, and others should have been prosecuted for war crimes during World War II. The atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki were two of the greatest crimes in history. The firebombing of cities packed with civilians, those were war crimes. The entire Vietnam War, the secret bombings of Cambodia and Laos, war crimes. Yes, all of those should have been prosecuted by an international court. And it should have begun at the top of the command structure. If the United States actually respected international law, then every U.S. president would have been tried as a war criminal, and rightly so. But this isn't just John Bolton's position. It basically was Bill Clinton's position that U.S. officials should not be subjected to the ICC's jurisdiction. And Bolton correctly pointed out that there was support from both Democrats and Republicans for a law that authorizes the U.S. to use military force to thwart attempted prosecutions or extraditions of its personnel under international war crimes law. This law, which enjoyed broad bipartisan support, authorizes the president to use all means necessary and appropriate, including force, to shield our service members and the armed forces of our allies from ICC prosecution. John Bolton is an unsavory, belligerent, undiplomatic scoundrel. He was also a member of the now-beloved George W. Bush administration. Bolton's position on international law is not the extremism of this White House. It is the firm position of the United States. It's just that John Bolton laid it out in terms that would be considered uncouth by the so-called adults in the Democratic and Republican parties. Well, there has been a pretty wild start to the midterm election season. It's now in full swing. And there are wars of sorts going on in both the Democratic and Republican parties. You have insurgent candidates taking down incumbents, and the Democratic Socialists of America have made a pretty big splash on the electoral scene. Later in the show, we're going to be digging into uh, what's going on in the Democratic Party and the battle between more progressive forces and the institutional elite. We're going to be uh, talking to my colleague uh, Brianna Joy Gray and Nathan Robinson, the editor-in-chief of Current Affairs magazine. We're also going to be talking with the brilliant socialist academic Dr. Kianga Yamada-Taylor. But we kick off today's show here in New York. The actor and activist Cynthia Nixon continues her campaign to unseat New York's powerful Democratic machine boss politician as governor. Andrew Cuomo, according to the polls, maintains a safe lead as of this broadcast. But as we've seen time and again recently, these polls have been wrong and pundits have been stunned. Nixon has fought a very serious social justice-oriented campaign, and she's both contributed to and benefited from a renewed political energy on the left in this country. We shall see what happens there. There's also a fierce competition in the race for the powerful and important position of New York Attorney General. 
One of those candidates who is running on a progressive platform and has vowed to criminally prosecute the Trump organization and potentially the president himself should she win. I'm talking about Zephyr Teachout. Her campaign dropped a new ad this week featuring Teachout, who is pregnant, getting an ultrasound. What does his or her future look like? Do we save our democracy? Do we flip Congress? Does Robert Mueller indict Trump? I don't want to wait and see. It's why I sued President Trump the week he was inaugurated, wrote the book on corruption and took on the Albany machine, and rallied against pharmaceutical and insurance companies for putting profits over people. I'm Zephyr Teachout, and you've never seen an attorney general like me. And neither have they. Zephyr Teachout is a law professor and a constitutional law expert. Early on in Trump's tenure, you might remember, she filed a lawsuit against Trump for allegedly violating the emoluments clause by personally profiting off of the presidency. The centerpieces of her campaign for attorney general are leading the legal resistance against the Trump assault on law and battling financial fraud and corporate scams. Her book on the history of anti-corruption laws in the United States, it's called Corruption in America, is widely recognized as a groundbreaking analysis on the subject. Zephyr Teachout, welcome to Intercepted. Hey, it's great to be on. I want to just start with an issue that you've been campaigning on that is very much a national and I think we could all we could argue international issue and that is your very overt pledge if you become attorney general of New York to go after Donald Trump. Lay out yeah. what powers you would have as attorney general and how you would approach that. Yeah. I mean there there are so many different problems with Donald Trump's presidency but one that we cannot forget is that he is he's taking foreign government money and he's the president of the United States and he's doing this through his businesses. So here in New York State, uh, we know just based on reporting, there's a lot we don't know, um, that the Chinese government is paying him rent. We know that a Saudi prince just spent a lot of money in one of his hotels. Uh, we know that the government of India and Qatar and the UAE are all paying him through his businesses. And this is in direct open violation of the United States Constitution. The correct remedy here is that he has to be forced to divest his business interests. And it's not only a constitutional violation, as you mentioned at the beginning, this has you know, real international implications. Every trade and military decision that we as a country are making in regards to China, for instance, has a huge question mark next to it because they are paying the chief decider. Um, so this is a corruption threat at a national and global level. It must be stopped. I have, I essentially with a, a few other uh, amazing lawyers around the country, built this legal strategy immediately after he was elected. I wrote the first op-ed about it in the New York Times. I brought a lawsuit with a handful of the top lawyers in the country against him in the Southern District of New York, and then encouraged the New York State Attorney General, then Eric Schneiderman, to pursue this in New York State. He did not, but I have been working with the offices of the Maryland and D.C. Attorney General, uh, Attorneys General. They have pursued this strategy, and they're winning. Right now, the most recent judicial decision um, cited my work extensively, and held that our, our understanding of the Constitution was the correct one, which means Trump will have to divest his business interests. I, I know people are looking for immediate action, 
and they may not understand what a big deal this is. This is a huge deal. Trump will finally have to choose between his business and his presidency. Well, I'm sure you, you've you've seen these appearances of uh, the former New York mayor, Rudy Giuliani, who now is serving yeah. as a, a lawyer of sorts for, for Trump. His primary job seems to be going on TV, saying outlandish things, lying. Yeah. Um, but one line that, that he and his camp are pushing and and they've given the impression of a of, of, that there's some sort of a constitutional debate about this is that the the president cannot be charged with a crime as an individual uh, a sitting president of the United States Donald Trump do you believe that he could be charged with a crime and would that be possible under your powers as attorney general if you win well well I do um I do believe that uh we are in a constitutional democracy, not a constitutional monarchy, um, that we actually, senators can be charged with crimes, judges can be charged with crimes, Congress members can be charged with crimes, and the president can be charged with crimes. We've never been in this situation before, so we're in truly uncharted territory. Um, And one of the reasons that I think that the nomination of Brett Kavanaugh is illegitimate um, is because this precise question may go to the Supreme Court. Um, and uh, no one, the most fundamental principle of law is that no one can pick their own judges and still call it law. Um, this has been untested. There is not a, you know, there's no uh, constitutional answer on this, but the very structure of our government is not a monarchic um, structure. So I think uh, I feel very strongly that it's possible to bring um, indictments if that's where the facts lead. And I think in the background of your question is is a really critical point, which is besides the illegal activities of the Trump organization, uh, which we must investigate, that the uh, illegal activities of the Trump Foundation, which we now already know about, there are individuals very close to Donald Trump. And, you know, if the facts lead to the president, the facts lead to the president that if they committed crimes, may likely have done so in New York. And it's really critical that the New York Attorney General, working with local DAs, be actively investigating criminal behavior. There's a, so many constitutional crises on the horizon. One is if Trump pardons an associate to protect himself, then you need the New York State Attorney General to be stepping in and be ready to um, prosecute under state law, which isn't covered by a federal uh, pardon, any uh, related crimes, because we, we got to be totally clear that no one is above the law. OK, let, let's say a uh, Trump associate X uh, gets convicted of something that is related in some manner to either corruption involving the Trump organization or the campaign. What are your powers if that person is pardoned? Right. So under New York, under federal law, uh, if New York had no double jeopardy statute, the federal pardon doesn't cover state crimes. So there would be no federal ban on investigating and then prosecuting that person under state law. Under New York state law, the powers are somewhat limited by the fact that we have a a double jeopardy statute and one of the more expansive double jeopardy statutes, which says that you cannot bring a prosecution for the same act for which there has been another federal uh, prosecution and either acquittal or pardon um, or, or or guilty plea. What that means is that if the only only illegal things that this associate did were one or two things and they were all pardoned for, then New York State's hands are tied. But 
based on press reports alone, um, we have every reason to believe that Trump associates may have been involved in many different illegal activities. So the key thing would be to be prepared with an investigation into a huge range of illegal activities. Like you'd want to look at bank fraud, false statements, campaign finance violations, tax crimes, which actually have their own exception, uh, which allow for greater prosecution um, in New York state. And since Trump's associates tend to be profoundly clumsy as well as lawless, there is every reason to believe that in almost every circumstance, it would be possible to bring then a state criminal law charge. And this is really important because you cannot have Donald Trump, and it's an important signal to send to him too. Like Trump, you cannot pardon your way out of, uh, you, you, you cannot protect yourself with pardons. That's a total abuse of the pardon power. And we in the states are ready ready to say, no, no one is above the law. You're talking a lot about corruption. Uh, I, and I yes. want to ask you, uh, we, are, we are now uh, on the 10th anniversary um, of the financial meltdown that, that was manufactured by extremely powerful, wealthy yes. financial institutions and white-collar criminals who are going unprosecuted, unpunished, um, and continuing uh, to carry on in the game. What is your plan to deal with Wall Street and to deal with predatory lenders who are ripping off ordinary working people and poor people? This is so critical. I actually have a deep uh, background here after the financial crash of 2008. I co-founded a group dedicated to breaking up big banks and advocating for putting more financial criminals in jail spent a lot of time lobbying for what became Dodd-Frank. I have, have taught in this area. I know this area well. I don't take corporate PAC money. I don't take Wall Street corporate money, unlike all my opponents. And and we have this national crisis where you have rollbacks of Dodd-Frank, some of which have been supported by my opponent, Sean Patrick Maloney, who takes a lot of Wall Street money, and Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which is run by somebody who does not believe in the legitimacy of the Bureau. So we are at genuine crisis mode when it comes to regulating the financial sector, which is based in New York. So one, we have very powerful tools here in New York, including the Martin Act, which is one of the strongest financial regulatory tools in the country. I am willing to fully use that. There's a range of other uh, state laws. And then there's also powers granted under Dodd-Frank to state attorneys general, which I am willing to use one of the many drivers, but a key driver of the last crisis was an out-of-control um, swaps market. Mm-hmm. And under Dodd-Frank, I have uh, laid out a strategy that is not yet being used, but that I would use uh, using the the granted power to the New York State Attorney General, along with all attorneys general, to um, enforce parts of Dodd-Frank that are not being enforced as um, banks push more and more overseas. I mean, we're we're threatened with financial instability that we are not yet done with the aftershocks of the 2008 crisis. The amount of wealth lost was extraordinary. The nature of the jobs in our state and country have changed after the crash. This is a real passion of mine and also a real difference. One of my opponents, Tish James, has said she doesn't want to be known as the sheriff of Wall Street. Mm-hmm. Um, the Another of my opponents has actively 
undermine Dodd-Frank by twice voting with Republicans to gut key, key provisions, provisions that I fought for, including reporting requirements about discrimination in lending. And if we don't know about what's happening in discrimination in lending, we can't protect against it. Wall Street understands this. They know the powers of the New York State Attorney General's office. They are doing everything they can to stop me because they know how powerful this office is. And um, luckily, we've got a lot of momentum, but I am fully ready to use all those powers because Lord knows people need protection from illegality in the financial sector. And yes, a key theme of my campaign is the wrong people are in jail. We need to focus on white collar crime and fight to end mass incarceration. Our criminal justice system is upside down. It's the big wigs that need the scrutiny and we need to end cash bail and at least cut our incarcerated population in half. Final question. Um, Based on the publicly available information that we have, do you think that there would be sound legal ground to initiate impeachment proceedings against Trump? Setting aside the, the current composition of the Congress, just on the legal merits of it, do you believe that there is publicly available evidence of high crimes and misdemeanors by this president? Well, there are three different ways to think about impeachment. And I'll tell you how I think about it. One is that it's a purely political tool and can be used uh, however one wants because the power is in Congress. The second is that there's a, a particular set of laws. And if you break those particular laws, then those are, quote unquote, impeachable offenses. Um, I actually ascribe to neither of those views, but the third view, which is that impeachment is reserved for very serious betrayals of trust um, of the office, which include, uh, but are not limited to, violations of federal and state law crimes. And for uh, over a year now, what I have said is the appropriate path, which we should do immediately, is to start an investigation and that Congress should start an impeachment investigation, and that given the lawlessness of the Trump administration, it is particularly important to follow those procedural steps to begin the investigation and start using the tools available um, that that Congress has available in order to uncover and lay bare all the facts uh, surrounding real questions of betrayal of trust And I think there is more than enough publicly available evidence, and there has been for some time, to begin an impeachment investigation. For me, the firing of Comey was a central moment in uh, the Trump presidency that warranted the beginning of an impeachment investigation. Well, Zephyr T. Shout, I'm I'm sure that uh, um, if you emerge victorious and you are the next Attorney General of New York, Donald Trump will certainly uh, know your name. Uh, and it sounds they, like they you're, ain't you're, seen nothing <laughs> yet. You're you're, <laughs> you're going to be a, a I think viewed as a very serious threat to the Trump administration and the Trump organization and to the president himself. We know they're paying close attention to this race. Uh, we we know they're 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 keeping their eyes on this race. There's a lot of power in this office, and I'm ready to use it. I'm sure they are. Good luck, Zephyr, on the campaign trail. And uh, Thank you. Great to, great to be on. Look forward to talking to you as Attorney General. Great. Me too. Take care. Bye-bye. Zephyr Teachout is a candidate for the Democratic nomination for Attorney General of New York. That primary election is this week on Thursday, September 13th.
As I mentioned in my conversation with Zephyr, this week marks the 10-year anniversary of the global financial crisis that was created by major U.S. financial institutions, speculators, predatory lenders, and, well, let's just call them what they are, corporate criminals. A new report out from the watch group Public Citizen says that as a result of the Obama administration's bailout of Wall Street banks, combined with the Trump administration's radical deregulation agenda and massive tax cuts for the wealthiest Americans, the five largest banks in the U.S. have been absolutely raking in cash over the past decade. J.P. Morgan Chase, Bank of America, Citigroup, Wells Fargo, and Goldman Sachs have accumulated more than $580 billion in combined profits over these past 10 years. Public Citizens President Rob Weissman noted that there has been no jail time for executives. And with a half a trillion dollars in profits, the big banks have made out like what he calls bandits. Public Citizen determined that these banks currently hold just shy of $10 trillion in assets. Both Barack Obama and Donald Trump claimed the American economy is in great shape, and both of them recently took credit for that. And by the time I left office, household income was near its all-time high, and the uninsured rate had hit an all-time low, and wages were rising, and poverty rates were falling. Uh, I mention all this just so when you hear how great the economy is doing right now, let's just remember when this recovery started. I said we have the greatest economy in our history. We have the greatest job numbers just about in our history. You look at African-American, you look at uh, any, any, any statistic you look at. In fact, the one I'm doing the worst with is women because they're only the best in 65 years. Can you imagine that? Few things bring elite Democrats and Republicans together more than good old-fashioned capitalism and the church of the so-called free market. In fact, it was blasting that bipartisan system that was one of the main issues that propelled Bernie Sanders to his still-maintained-by-the-way very high popularity ratings. Sanders, of course, identifies himself as a democratic socialist, and he has inspired others to run who campaign under that same banner. But is democratic socialism actually compatible with the Democratic Party? What happens to insurgents when they become part of the system? Those are questions that candidates like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez are going to be facing next year when they arrive on Capitol Hill. It would also be a question facing Bernie Sanders, should he run again for president and actually win. Both major corporate political parties in this country are in their own battles of sorts over their core identity. And time and again in this election cycle, we have seen powerful establishment Democrats step into races where progressives are challenging establishment Democrats to back their old horses against the new blood. We've seen a Republican version of this in some races as well, though that largely involves Trump intervening to support candidates challenging or fighting off more traditional Republicans. It's no doubt a fascinating moment, but it's also one that comes with great stakes. One of the big questions that really should be asked, is the Democratic Party, as it has existed for a long time and continues to exist, worthy of progressive support for any reason other than they're not Trump or they're not Republicans? As I've followed and analyzed this political moment we're in, 
I've been wanting to speak again to my friend and all-around brilliant person, Dr. Kianga Yamada-Taylor. She is assistant professor of African-American studies at Princeton University. She's also the author of From Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation. That's an examination of the history and politics of Black America and the development of the social movement Black Lives Matter. Dr. Taylor has just finished her forthcoming book, Race for Profit, Black Homeownership and the End of the Urban Crisis. That's a book that's going to look at the federal government's promotion of single-family homeownership in black communities after the urban rebellions of the 1960s. The book's going to drop next year. Dr. Kianga Yamada-Taylor, welcome back to Intercepted. Thanks, Jeremy. Very glad to be here. Where do you see things now with the Trump presidency, the state of resistance against Trump, and the institutional Democratic Party? I think that we've seen the kind of racism and reaction that this presidency has unleashed. You know, we've seen the constitutive elements of the possibilities of a sustained movement against Trump over the last year. Some of the most heroic and important examples of that are the teacher strikes. That began in West Virginia, the way that it continues in Washington state. So we see the battle on the labor front that certainly is a repudiation of Trumpism beginning to develop. I think that we've seen a kind of popular mobilization against the Trump administration's regressive and disgusting immigration policies, particularly the attempts to separate children from their parents at the border, that there was a popular rebellion against that policy that very quickly led to it being dismantled, even though there are still 500 children who remain in detention at the hands of the Trump administration. We saw what a kind of popular mobilization can do and still has the power to do to resist the overtures of the Trump administration. So I think there are smaller examples of protests. There have continued to be protests against police abuse and violence in black communities. There has been the strike of the incarcerated, the prison strikes. And I think part of the challenge for those of us who are interested in, you know, not just episodic resistance, but really knitting together the different kinds of movements into a coherent and larger unified social movement to not just resist Trump, but to resist those issues that give rise to Trump in the first place, is that we have to be able to put forward a kind of political vision and understanding of how that can happen. And I, my fear is that as the we get closer to the midterm elections in November, that all of the energy, intellect, and the focus that has been very important in responding to different aspects of Trump's agenda gets sucked into the electoral cycle, gets sucked into the midterm machinery, and that we become so fixated that we forget that the most powerful resistance that we have to Trump's agenda remains our ability to be organized in the streets, and to also not just protest, but that we begin to talk to each other, understand our different struggles, and try to find 
the points of unity, try to find the points at which they come together so that we can build not just a movement that is reactive, but that we can really look beneath, that we can get to the root of what has given rise to Trump that, of course, is not just about Trump, but what is it about our political and economic system in this country that allows for these kinds of injustices that in many ways are bipartisan to continue? That's not just a question that can be resolved in the midterm elections. It's a deeper and systemic issue because when Obama came out last week with his speech at the University of Illinois at Champaign-Urbana, you know, Obama is very good for a sweet-sounding speech, especially when we have become used to the, you know, Neanderthal in the White House, who uh, we're not even sure is literate. The biggest threat to our democracy, I said yesterday, is not, it's not one individual, it's not one big super PAC billionaires, it's apathy, it's indifference. It's us not doing what we're supposed to do. So Obama always, you know, we can't be cynical. We have to get out and roll our sleeves up. But at some point, we have to try to examine and understand what the nature of some of the cynicism is. And I don't think that we can understand the victory of Trump without understanding the failures of the Democratic Party, particularly the failures of the Obama administration, because those two things are directly connected. And so we can talk about cynicism within the electorate, but we have to understand that what is at the root of what I would describe as the enthusiasm gap with Democratic Party voters is that someone like Obama talks big talk on the campaign trail and all of the things that government can do on the campaign trail And this vision of the Democratic Party is leading the charge for reform. But then once in office, the inability to act in ways that fundamentally change people's lives for the better take place. And that's why people become cynical. We can look at that and the failures of the Obama administration as a significant contribution to why people didn't turn out in 2016 and why people continue to remain skeptical about the ability of the Democratic Party to transcend the status quo. As I look at it, when we look back at the last 16 years of Democratic presidents, two terms of Clinton, two terms of Obama, what you largely had come out of those 16 years was a push even further to the right in this country certainly with its domestic politics, did the lives of poor people get better as a result of the Clintons and and Obama? No. Did the war stop? No, they expanded. Did the Republicans mainstream many of their ideas within the institutional Democratic Party? Yes. Yes, they did. And I, I look at that and then I compare it to What did Hillary Clinton's people say they wanted? They said, we want women to run for office. We want young people to run for office. We want black people to run for office. We want people of color, LGBTQ. And in so many races that we have seen just in the past year, you see the Hillary Clinton wing of the Democratic Party coming in and endorsing incumbent, conservative, in some cases, old white male Democratic candidates 
against the very people that they said that they wanted to run. We have leaders in Washington who want to roll back decades of progress, no matter what the cost. This is one of the most challenging times I've ever seen for our country. Andrew Cuomo is the perfect antidote. I've known Andrew for over 20 years. And so why should anyone put their energy, their effort, their faith, their trust into a machine that says, oh, we want all of you to run, except don't run against these old white male senators that are our friends? How many times are people going to step on this rake in the backyard of the Democratic Party that's been there always in the same place and people just keep stepping on it and it whacks them in the face every time. You know, this is why it's important to know history and to understand the really subversive relationship that the Democratic Party has had to social movements to its left, uh, whether it's in the 1930s, whether it's in the 1960s, or certainly the, the 1980s when Jesse Jackson ran the Rainbow Coalition and certainly ran a a left-wing campaign that is used to capture black voters, left-wing, progressive, white working-class voters, but really to bring them back within the orbit of the Democratic Party. Labor cannot win the battle against right-to-work laws until women are free. Women cannot be free until blacks and Hispanics are free. Thus, blacks, women, Hispanics, workers, Indians, Chinese, Filipinos, we must come together and form the Rainbow Coalition. We need each other. And so when people have believed that they could use the machinery of the Democratic Party, that all too often, instead of those forces changing the party, they have been changed by the party. What happens in black politics in the 1960s, 70s, the Democratic Party had a conscious strategy of absorbing broad parts of the left to try to create the impression that you could be active in formal politics, in in the political system that Political activism didn't just need to be in opposition to the system, but that the parties and the structures of the political system could be flexible enough and open enough to allow for the activism and activity of Black people, of women, and of young people. And the outcome, it had a conservatizing impact on those politics Because no longer was the discussion about black liberation or women's liberation or anti-capitalism, but instead the objectives became much more contained and constrained into what was possible within the confines of the political system. And so what was pushing the political discussion objectives to the left in the first place was a mass movement that centered around the black movement as a way to try to respond and engage with that movement. And so without the political propellant of social struggle on the ground, politics became very conservative, and they went back into the framework of what was possible, what is pragmatic. It's not to say that elections are unimportant or immaterial, because obviously they're not, but we can't talk about politics within a vacuum of what happens within the Democratic Party or what happens between the Democratic 
and Republican Party, because we can see that outside of the context of a social movement, politics in this country functions within the framework that the right creates. And it's only when there is a social movement afoot that raises the much broader demands, that raises the bigger demands, do those needs even come into the view of the discussion? Part of uh, of my concern with the victory and ascent of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and by the way, I, I interviewed her on this program. I like a lot of what she's about. I think she is really smart, and I think she has great potential to really be an unusual voice in Washington, D.C. At the same time, the way that this situation got handled when she was confronted about her condemnation of the Israeli pogrom against the Palestinians was to sort of immediately back away and say, I am not the expert on geopolitics on this issue. You know, for me, I'm a firm believer in uh, in finding a, a two state solution in this issue. If we elect people who say that they're democratic socialists to office and then they go to Washington and most of what they are is Democrats uh, and a little bit of socialism when it's ready to pop the question. The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. acceptable or when rabble-rousing is permitted by the party leadership, then it's going to have the opposite effect that I think a lot of people wanted it to when they cast their votes for somebody different, which is, you know, we don't want more of the same. So with this new kind of attention being paid to the term socialism and to democratic socialist candidates, you as a longtime committed socialist, how do you see the positives and the risks, the dangers of this moment where you have the left, uh, uh, you know, outside of the Democratic Party piercing into that tent again with the Democratic Socialists kind of playing this inside-outside game with the Democratic Party. The idea that you could ever sort of openly talk about socialism, say that you were a socialist, this was unfathomable, you know, 20 years ago. It was unfathomable, you know, maybe even 10 years ago. Um, And so today— that's different. And that's a great thing. I mean, Jim Carrey is somewhere on some talk show saying that yeah, we have to say yes to socialism, to the word and everything. I, we have to stop apologizing. I, I am. These are phenomenal developments and they open up the space to have what I was talking about earlier, which is to have a much broader, bigger discussion to talk about fundamentally transforming people's lives. What does it mean to Uh, have a life unencumbered by poverty, by concerns about 
housing, by concerns about health care, by concerns about education, by concerns about being able to maintain any semblance of a quality of life. And so when we can talk about socialism and talk about the enormous inequality that pervades American society, this is a good thing. The problem, however, is that some of the discussion about socialism is being reduced to issues of state control. You know, do we just need more social welfare programs? Do we just need more public policies that advocate for more funding for public schools or public hospitals or things of that nature? But in discussing socialism as if it were simply a social welfare program, it really truncates the breadth and the depth of what the socialist project actually is, that ordinary people who are the creators of all wealth in our society and across the world have the right, the democratic right, to decide how those wealth and resources that they create through their labor should be utilized. And that means not having millionaire interlocutors speak for us to determine how those resources should be used, which, to be honest, is all Congress has been reduced to. Most of them have absolutely no clue about what it is like to be a regular person in this country and to have to make decisions about rent or prescriptions. And that's not hyperbole. Those are actual debates that people have with themselves or within their households on a day-to-day basis. And so socialism is about removing those people and letting the people who create the wealth decide. That discussion, the sense of socialism as the emancipation of ordinary people to be in control of their own lives and to be in control of their own situation is being jettisoned for really is a a talk about an expansion of the social welfare state. When we look at the impacts of capitalism and climate change, when we look at the enormous amounts of poverty and deprivation that are created by and perpetuated by capitalism, and also when we look at the war and the destruction and the human carnage that is generated through a system for profit, the idea of U.S. imperialism, the impact of war in our society and abroad has been completely left out of this resurgent discussion of socialism. On the sort of uh, flip side from Democrats to Republicans, in my estimation, just really monitoring the developments of the Republican Party in this moment of Trump, the extreme right wing in the United States right now has an incredible amount of power. And I don't just mean officially. I mean that this game that is playing out where the Republicans can anonymously say, oh, well, the real adults in the room, we're making sure that the empire stays afloat and we're keeping Trump at bay, but then benefiting from every single thing Trump does, that it seems to me like quite a a shrewd play on the part of the kind of lifers within the extreme right-wing movement in this country, that they're using Trump in a spectacularly evil and brilliant way. And I think that they're they're largely winning with what they're they're doing, in part because of all the problems you just described with the Democratic Party. But how do you see this 
moment. I mean, you you and I both you know came a political age in the 1990s, uh, where the campus free speech stuff was you know was a big deal at that time. A lot of racists were doing the same things we see now, where they're they're going to try to cause a provocation. But you also had this sense that the extreme right wing they had a long term plan, and I don't think that Trump is as much of a monkey wrench in their plan as he is this gift that they had to be dragged into realizing they should accept. Oh, yeah. I mean, people ask me all the time, Trump is such an embarrassment. Why do the Republicans put up with this? If you look beyond the chaos that is generated from his Twitter account, it's easy to see why the Republicans put up with this, Uh, whether it's the historic tax cut, the rapid and utterly frightening transformation of the judiciary, the tinkering with the machinery of the state is creating the kinds of changes that will far exceed the tenure of the Trump administration. We're witnessing a virtual coup within the the confines of the Supreme Court in the ultimate validation of this strategy of dealing with the chaos, the lack of civility, the inattention to political norms, all of the things that people have said that this administration represents while missing what is actually happening under the hood. You know, it's an important thing to pay attention to in understanding what the actual impact of this administration is and what its reverberations will be. But the institutional impacts, as important as they are, We can make them seem infallible or beyond the reach of ordinary people. And this especially becomes true with the Supreme Court. Clearly, it is a frightening thing to have a disproportionate number of right-wing zealots on the, the Supreme Court. I think this will create a permanent schism at 5-4. I mean, the court presents itself as impervious to political influence in all politics, and we know Uh, We should know that that is absolutely incorrect, that the court drips in politics and basically helps to create politics and is also impacted by politics. But that doesn't mean that these institutions are all powerful and are beyond the reach of popular demands or popular appeals. But it does point back to why, for our side, we have to continue to organize And we have to be able to build the kinds of movements that have the power and the capacity to force these governing institutions to accede to the will of those who are most affected by its decision making. You brought up earlier the prison strike, which got very little attention. There was a smattering of publications that were reporting on it, and uh, it was a, a 19 day national prison strike. The strikers put forward 10 demands addressing the conditions of people being held in the prisons. It called for policies that, quote, recognize the humanity of imprisoned men and women, an end to prison slavery. And you have prisoners doing all sorts of uh, manual labor, sometimes 24-hour shifts. What is the significance of this 19-day national prison strike that officially ended this past weekend? It speaks to the level of organizing that exists within the prisons. It also says something about the humanity 
of the imprisoned, which in this country is so critical to assert and reassert. An important aspect of the strike is asserting under whatever conditions someone exists in the jails and prisons of this country that we should be demanding, you know, while some of us fight for the abolition of these cages and of the system of caging people, that as long as people are in prison, that they have the absolute right to live and exist in the most humane conditions that are possible. And so the strike and the organizing of the strike show that to be the demand of the imprisoned themselves and that it's not, we're not just here talking about them, but that they are asserting their own rights to dignity and humanity. The Black Lives Matter movement has helped to put a national and international spotlight on the racist policing and practices and abuse of American police. And in doing so, it has necessarily questioned the criminal justice system, the system of policing. And within that discussion, there has to be a further examination and evaluation of what happens to those who are caught up in the system of policing and the criminal justice system. I think what we see is that it will take an absolute mass movement just to be able to address the conditions that the imprisoned have raised. Prisons, policing, a racist, unequal criminal justice system are absolutely integral to the system of capitalism, economic and political organization of society that relies on the marginalization and demonization of some. And prison is a way that they help to reinforce the ideas of dehumanization and marginalization. And so they are core features of the economic system that we live under. And so the strike is absolutely essential to trying to both connect with other prisoners within the system itself, but to also educating the broader public about what it means to be imprisoned in the United States of America. Final question. There was uh, this huge match in tennis between Naomi Osaka and Serena Williams uh, over the weekend at the U.S. Open. And I saw live this, uh, this incident where you had Serena Williams reacting to a call from the umpire. I don't cheat. I didn't get coaching. How can you say that? You need to, you need to, you owe me an apology. You owe me an apology. I have never cheated in my life. I have a daughter and I stand what's right for her and I've never cheated. And you owe me an apology. You never do And then standing up and calling out the clear sexism at play in the way she was treated after uh, breaking her racket versus how her male counterparts are treated. But the, you know how many other men, you know how many other men do things that are, I, I don't think they do much worse than that. This is not fair. There's a lot of men out here that have said a lot of things because they're a man and that doesn't happen to The racism of the commentators that I watched afterwards, it was a bit jaw-dropping. Uh, I mean, I, I'm not shocked at anything I see on TV, but the words they use to talk about Serena Williams, they would never use to talk about a man or a white woman. Listen, it, 
I don't know if you've seen this uh, cartoon. All is missing is either a huge slice of watermelon or a bone for her nose. I mean, it's straight out of the 19th century. You know, I will just say that this, along with Kaepernick, it just, there are no discrete categories of culture, politics, sports. These things are enmeshed in the United States and I suspect elsewhere. And it means that when anything happens, especially when it comes to pro sports that are either black majority where black players dominate, that it immediately becomes a lightning rod for this kind of uh, racist invective. The fact that that cartoon, which is literally some caricature out of a menstrual Jim Crow scenario from the 19th century. Before you continue on, I just want for people that did not follow this, what Kianga and I are talking about is a cartoon that was published uh, this week in the aftermath of that tennis match. And it was published in the Australian newspaper, The Herald Sun. But because of the social media universe that we live in, it was promoted all over the internet and social media and also has been attacked for very much the same reasons that Kianga is articulating now also on social media. And the, the cartoonist was very proud of it. I mean, he tweeted out that this was my cartoon for the week. And it's the same kind of Thing that Donald Trump is trying to tap into and instigate the idea that these are loud-mouthed black people who have not earned the right to speak out or who have not earned their place in their sport, but who have been given something and are ungrateful as if they have their prowess in the sport that they play is because of someone else's hard work. And so it very quickly taps into racist discourses that are at the heart of American society. The idea that, you know, Black people are entitled, that Black people want something for nothing, and that that is so seductive to white people who have been raised on this idea of the domestic dysfunction and personal irresponsibility, entitlement of black people. And so this is the burden that a Colin Kaepernick, and particularly uh, Serena Williams, who is a dark-skinned black woman in a racist country, dominating a sport that has been owned by white people since its very existence. Many of them can't come to grips with the fact that Serena Williams dominates the game, which is why she's drug-tested more than any other athlete on the tournament circuit and why she has to put up with the constant questioning of her athletic abilities, of her game, that she has no game, that all she has is brute strength. And so I think that just the burden that women, especially Black women, have to carry with them in all forms of work speaks so much to other social crises that Black women are disproportionately represented in. And so you can imagine with Serena, with her celebrity, with her access to resources, that she is able to navigate these kinds of things. You can imagine what this is like, what type of toll this would take in the life of an ordinary person. This is a burden that millions of Black women have to deal with on a regular basis. 
Hmm. Well, we're going to leave it there. Kianga Yamada-Taylor, thank you so much for all of your work and for joining us again on Intercepted. Thanks, Jeremy. Glad to be here. Dr. Kianga Yamada-Taylor is Assistant Professor of African American Studies at Princeton University. This week marks the 17th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. The U.S. is still in Afghanistan, and its commanders are still issuing statements about how the end of the war may be in sight. There will soon be soldiers deploying to the longest continually running U.S. war who were not even born on 9-11. Every year on this anniversary, I rewatch the powerful speech given by Representative Barbara Lee of California. It was delivered just three days after the 9-11 attacks on the floor of the House of Representatives. She was the only member of either house of the U.S. Congress to vote against the authorization for the use of military force. That was the bill that gave Bush and Cheney their blank check to wage war on the world, and it had no definable endgame. And in fact, it's still on the books to this day. Barbara Lee's speech was a prophetic one and a brave one, and she came under fierce attacks and death threats as a result of it. Barbara Lee's name has been floated recently as a potential candidate to run for leader of the Democrats in the House. Now, if that somehow happened, it would mark a pretty significant political shift in the leadership of the Democratic Party. So on this anniversary of 9-11, we look back at this incredible moment in U.S. history with Congresswoman Lee. This is the story of that speech in her own words. It set the stage for what we know now as perpetual war. It said basically the president, and any president, has the authority to use force forever as long as he or she can justify a connection to 9-11. Now that was overly broad, it was unconstitutional, and it was wrong. Now I didn't come to this decision lightly because I knew that there would be only a few who would uh, vote no given the anger and the real despair and the frustration and the depression of the country at the time. This nation stands with the good people of New York City and New Jersey and Connecticut as we mourn the loss of thousands of our citizens. I can hear you. But I knew that I had to vote no because this was something that went totally counter to what what our Constitution requires and also given the fact that we have to fight, and I'm, I'm not looking at the ro- world through rose-colored glasses. I mean, we have to fight terrorism, but we can't engage in actions that are going to make our country less secure and create more anger and more war around the world. But those were some very terrible and difficult days, and I decided at the prayer service at the National Cathedral that I was going to vote no. The minister, Nathan Baxter, in his prayer, he said, let us not become the evil who we deplore. And at that moment, I knew then that there was no way my conscience would allow me to vote for 
a resolution that would set the stage for a perpetual war, endless war. Let us also pray for divine wisdom as our leaders consider the necessary actions for national security. Wisdom of the grace of God that as we act, we not become the evil we deplore. And my friend for yielding. Mr. Speaker, members, I rise today really with a very heavy heart. One that is filled with sorrow for the families and the loved ones who were killed and injured this week. Only the most foolish and the most callous would not understand the grief that has really gripped our people and millions across the world. This unspeakable act on the United States has really forced me, however, to rely on my moral compass, my conscience, and my God for direction. September 11th changed the world. Our deepest fears now haunt us. Yet I am convinced that military action will not prevent further acts of international terrorism against the United States. This is a very complex and complicated matter. Now, this resolution will pass, although we all know that the president can wage a war even without it. However difficult this vote may be, some of us must urge the use of restraint. Our country is in a state of mourning. Some of us must say, let's step back for a moment. Let's just pause just for a minute and think through the implications of our actions today so that this does not spiral out of control. Now, I have agonized over this vote, but I came to grips with it today, and I came to grips with opposing this resolution during the very painful, yet very beautiful memorial service. As a member of the clergy so eloquently said, as we act, let us not become the evil that we deplore. Thank you, and I yield the balance of my time. Gentlewoman's time has expired. Gentleman from Illinois. I received uh, many, many, many uh, death threats. I received many emails and phone calls uh, threatening me uh, and my family. It, it was very, uh, I think, very insightful for me even though it was a very difficult time. But to see how people really don't understand that central to democracy is the right to dissent and that we have the right to exercise our First Amendment rights, we don't have to go along with the program or with any administration if, in fact, we believe that it's wrong. So while, yes, we needed unity and we needed to let the world know that we weren't going to accept any acts of terrorism against the United States, we certainly should do it in a way that doesn't make people afraid nor make people believe that if we don't vote for something that's going to make us less secure, that we're committing acts of treason or a traitor. And that's what I was called over and over again. But that blank check is still on the books. And uh, now with this president who claims that he uh, loves war and he has um, a shoot-first policy, you know, I'm very fearful 
that uh, this resolution, unless repealed, will give him the authority to do whatever he decides to do one day. Barbara Lee is a Democratic congresswoman from California. She was the only member of either House of Congress to vote against the authorization for the use of military force. She gave that speech on September 14th, 2001. Last week, an anonymous op-ed was published in the New York Times. I'm sure all of you have followed this uh, by someone that the paper called a senior Trump official. And it was titled, I am part of the resistance inside the Trump administration. (laughs) Resistance? Come on, that's utter bullshit. Whoever wrote that op-ed was clearly a repulsive, despicable individual who attempted to lay out the virtuosity of true conservatism in the face of the unhinged Trump who, and I'm quoting here, continues to act in a manner that is detrimental to the health of the republic. You know, I actually kind of agree with Trump that the person who wrote this is a coward. And also at the same time, they're part of this administration. They're choosing to stay there. And they're embracing and promoting the bulk of the stated, racist, xenophobic, warmongering of Donald Trump. This person Instead of this weak and pathetic attempt at internal self-serving protest, they could have publicly denounced Trump, resign, stand up against Trump in a real way, stand up against his grotesque policies. But the reason that person didn't is because they agree with most of the agenda. On the war front, Donald Trump is expanding covert operations. He's greenlighting more assassination missions. He's taking the gloves off and allowing the military to kill much larger numbers of civilians without even the modicum of restraint previously shown by Obama. And in Yemen, as I mentioned earlier, still a genocidal war that the U.S. is fueling, funding, aiding, and deeply, deeply involved with. But all of this, the relentless wars, the coup attempts, the racism inside of the United States, the U.S. inserting itself into foreign affairs with a flagrant hypocrisy that when we do it, it's just and humanitarian— All of this occurs no matter who is in the White House, Democrat or Republican. This was on full display recently at John McCain's funeral, where you had an entire room of former president and statesmen all cozying up to each other, passing their mints and talking about being on the same team. That could have been a gathering of people at a war crimes tribunal. So what hope is there for real progressive resistance? What alternatives do we actually have to a two-party, pro-war, pro-corporate system. To talk about the left, the Democratic Party, and this primary season, I'm joined by two people. Nathan Robinson is the editor of Current Affairs magazine, and he, of course, predicted before the Democratic primary in 2016 that if the Democrats run Hillary Clinton instead of Bernie Sanders, Donald Trump would win the White House. He's a prolific writer and commentator of both politics and the absurd, His latest book is Trump, Anatomy of a Monstrosity. And I'm joined by Brianna Joy Gray. She's the Intercept senior politics editor. She's also a contributing editor at Current Affairs. Her latest column for The Intercept is Beware the Race Reductionist. Brianna Joy Gray, Nathan Robinson, welcome to Intercepted. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Nice to be with you. Brianna, let's begin with you. Um, It's clear that Donald Trump is having another meltdown in part because Barack Obama is speaking publicly now. And uh, last week, you had Obama give this speech at the University of Illinois at Champaign-Urbana. 
where, among other things, he uh, came out in support of Medicare for All, which is funny because uh, as a candidate, he said he supported Medicare for All. How do we get the federal government to take care of its business? I happen to be a proponent of a single-payer universal health care plan. And he was president for eight years. And for a decent chunk of that, the Democrats had control of the Senate. What did you make of this Obama appearance now in the Trump moment? I will give Obama a sliver of credit here because he did say during that speech that he doesn't consider Trump to be anomalous. He said something along the lines of, It did not start with Donald Trump. He is a symptom, not the cause. With respect to his discovery of this newfangled idea, uh, Medicare for all. So Democrats aren't just running on good old ideas like a higher minimum wage. They're running on good new ideas like Medicare for all. I, of course, am deeply frustrated (laughs) by the uh, selective appreciation for progressive programs, depending on whose mouth the idea comes out of, having endured the last two years of kind of this anti-Bernie Sanders fervor from a certain fairly narrow segment, uh, but very vocal segment of Democrats. However, I'm trying to keep that kind of petty part of me under wraps, because at the end of the day, if Barack Obama saying that Medicare for All is a good idea helps people come on to the fact that Medicare for All is a good idea and um, frustrates their efforts to claim that it's bad simply because it's something that Bernie Sanders backs, I mean, I, I have to be excited about it, even if I grumble about it under my breath and on my Twitter feed. (laughs) Nathan, how do you see the state of the institutional Democratic Party and also the sort of broader left where you have people that were supporters of the Green Party? You now have multiple factions within the Democratic Socialists of America, but DSA is becoming a real thing in electoral politics and has secured some victories, most notably Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Yeah, well, it varies around the country from place to place. So the Democratic Party is not uniform. But I think that the general tendency is that the, if you divide it roughly, the so-called establishment wing of the Democratic Party is quite vulnerable, I think, in a lot of places. We saw that with Ocasio-Cortez, but, um, you know, then there was this argument that, oh, well, that was just in the Bronx. That just happens in deep blue uh, areas. But then we just saw it again with Andrew Gillum in Florida, who ran on uh, Medicare for All, and again, a man of color. So, again, complicating these identity questions. Um, And, you know, ran on Medicare for All, was very explicit about it. How about running for governor and being the most progressive Democrat who would invest a billion dollars in education and create Create Medicare for all. Is it impossible to come from nothing, be outspent 10 to 1, and win? And won in a huge upset. And that's in a Trump voting state. And now we're seeing that even in a deep red state like Texas, someone like Ted Cruz uh, may be vulnerable to someone who runs on a kind of explicitly progressive message. And I went to Michigan to report on the gubernatorial primary there. And I talked to people who were working on the Abdul El Sayed campaign. And Abdul lost, but he won far more of the vote than you would expect of an explicitly left candidate in a Trump state in a Democratic primary. The interesting thing to me was that a lot of people working on the campaign there were young people, some of whom had been Hillary Clinton supporters, who after 2016 had said, well, the time for compromise is over. We now want to find someone who is very sincerely committed to advancing left values. And I, and I hear that a lot, the sort of gambit that the institutional Democratic Party used to make, which was, yeah, well, you have to compromise your principles for the sake of achieving power. A lot more people 
are rejecting that, and that's why you see the DSA's numbers growing. That's why you see people flocking to the campaigns of these progressive insurgent candidates who say, I want single payer and don't make any kind of compromising statements about it. So I think it's hard to say, it's hard to predict the future, but I do think a lot of Democratic candidates are vulnerable. Uh, Bree, I wanted to ask you about the recent controversy over Jack Dorsey's appearance in Congress. Do you discriminate more on philosophy like anti-conservative versus pro-liberal? No. Our, our policies and our algorithms don't take into consideration any affiliation, philosophy, or viewpoint. And the banning of Alex Jones from Twitter. You're a public figure, too. If I go to Twitter and say, he's bullying me, I'm only trying to be platform everywhere and celebrating it, and then insulting my viewers a week later saying no one's doing it. How dumb do you think your viewers are? Do they have no memory, like Dari from Finding Nemo? Is there any justification for stripping freedom of speech of, and I, I know that in a constitutional sense, uh, we're not talking about freedom of speech when we talk about private companies like Twitter, but is there any reason why you believe someone should be banned from being on Twitter or Facebook? My biggest concern here is that whatever rule is adopted is applied consistently. I'm not a free speech absolutist insofar as I would say these companies, which ultimately still are private companies, should allow any kind of dialogue to happen on there, partly because I think a lot of why these platforms become popular is because there are certain social norms that end up getting enforced, right? The great story of Facebook is that it, it seems more legitimate. It seems like people are who they say they are. And, and Twitter has tried to enforce some of those rules as well in terms at least of policing, you know, fake accounts and, and things like that. So I do think that people aren't going to want to go on Twitter if it's a constant Nazi fest all the time. At the same time, I under, there's legitimate concern here that there is a selective choice about who actually gets policed and, and who doesn't. And I think that a lot of the rules that these places have adopted are pretty good insofar as they track the kinds of concerns that are set out by the First Amendment in terms of not wanting to incite violence against particular groups, um, forbidding doxing or certain kinds of bullying that are likely to lead to uh, personal harm. But the problem is that since they rely on a lot of self-reporting and because the volume of, of users are so high that you know all of the transgressors can't be chosen, it ends up being the case that political decisions are being made about who gets to stay and who doesn't get to stay. And I'm not sure that anyone's really um, resolved that in any meaningful way, although I know that Nathan's recently been writing about how Wikipedia is perhaps the best model for that sort of a thing. Well, Nathan, I was about to ask you about that, I, but what just one point, and this isn't unique to me, a lot of people have made this point, but you have major institutional threats of violence being made by Donald Trump and other powerful political leaders around the world regularly, and their accounts are blue checkmark verified, and there's no chance of them being stripped of their Twitter voice. And it seems as though we are essentially ceding principles of free speech to the barons of you know social media. Yeah, the serious problem is that, I mean, you're always going to have to have cases where people can't use the platform. You can't allow threats. Uh, you can't allow people plotting crimes on the medium. The problem to me is a lack of democracy in rulemaking and rule enforcement. You know, whether Donald Trump stays on Twitter is dependent on what's in Jack Dorsey's head that day, whether he decides. And so it's a problem of who decides. I don't think we should balkanize these platforms by splitting them 
them up, what I think we should do is democratize them. And as Bree mentioned, I've been writing about the Wikipedia model. Wikipedia fascinates me because it's the one among the sort of mass user participation sites that hasn't had a massive scandal. I mean, Wikipedia in its early days was considered quite unreliable, but the interesting thing about it is that they worked it out. And they worked it out through having the community itself develop the procedures for deciding who stays on and off. So I am reluctant to appeal to the overlords to enforce their rules better because I don't think there is a way for overlords to enforce rules without it being sort of arbitrary and reflecting their biases. What I think we need is uh, participatory processes where the users help decide and then vote on. As I say, Wikipedia has the editors decide what the processes are. They decide what the process is for deciding when there's a disagreement about the processes are. And it's all user generated. And that, I think, gives people a lot more trust in a platform when they feel like they're not being subjected to the authority of people that have no accountability whatsoever and can't be recalled if they make bad decisions. Nathan, what, what do you think is the best way to fight fascist elements, fascist movements, extreme right-wing authoritarian institutions and people in this country, in the United States? I mean, I've written skeptically about the sort of uh, let's fight them in the streets approach because I think that that is a little bit short-sighted. I think sometimes it's actually very effective. Like, you know, uh, Cornel West said it was very effective in Charlottesville. The Antifa were very, very helpful. Um, so I think I think you had to deploy it very strategically and very cautiously and in a media-savvy way that doesn't um, make inflame public opinion against you. But generally, the best thing that we can do to stop the far right is to have a a left agenda that everybody loves, right? To put forward a left alternative that just is capable of luring mass support and that doesn't make us fringe because when people look at the right, they see hatred and they see nationalism and violence. And when they look at the left, they don't see people just talking about the Trump op-ed and the Mueller investigation. They see people talking about all of the things that the left can do for you, all of the plans that we have for your life and all of the ways in which we're better. We're just more loving people. We're more sensible people and we're more effective people. But is there any reconciliation with the institutional Democratic Party, the elites of the party, the people that ran Hillary Clinton's campaign? I, I feel like there's this need to accept the big lie, the big lie that somehow America ever was great in the sense that, uh, you know, it was treating its people fairly, not based on race or religion or gender or sexual orientation. That's always been bullshit. This country was built on white supremacy. This country continues, even if you have a black president, to operate as a major white supremacist institution. And I, I feel like part of the electoral strategy that is being encouraged is you have to accept the big lies in order to build a coalition that's going to take down Donald Trump or is going to confront the right. I don't buy it. I can't be that plastic. I can't swallow that bullshit. Like you, For me, the starting point is you have to understand the history of this country, the big lie that nuclear weapons keep us safe, the big lie that somehow racism ended, and the big lie that the Democratic Party actually represents a voice of struggling working people or people who are the victims of what this country was built on. Yeah, the, the irony is that Trump 
one, not with that big lie. Somehow in 2016, things got flipped so that it was the Democratic Party, the party that has, at least in recent history, been the party of the marginalized, who came out with the claim that America is already great. And I think that that is what is kind of essentializes the Democratic Party's core misunderstanding of how human nature and the American people are thinking, which is that everybody understands that their lives could be more perfect. And and that's something that Barack Obama got. And that's why he was so kind of brilliant in centering more perfect as part of his electoral agenda. It's not about condemning America, because that can easily be twisted in political terms. It's about acknowledging that we have come a long way, that there have been genuine progress and genuine accomplishments, but that the status quo is not sufficient and that people are suffering mightily under it. If the Democratic Party isn't willing to acknowledge that because they think doing so cedes some ground to Donald Trump, they're going to continue to cede a lot more ground to him and his ideas going forward. Populism is about being able to connect your agenda with what everyday people need. And the problem is that the Democratic Party has for a long time been able to coast off of this idea that we're not as bad as the other guy and that the other guy basically having ignored the interest of all of these historically marginalized groups has allowed Democrats by playing a little lip service to the idea that we don't hate gay people as much as they do and we don't hate black people and Hispanic people and immigrants as much as they do, then you should come onto our side. But at a certain point, gay people and black people and immigrants all have other concerns in addition to their identity, which are augmented by the marginalization that comes with their identity, that they need to be addressed. And when a party is so focused on this idea that the only thing that they're going to talk about is these concerns that don't go to the core economic truths, then they're going to continue to lose. And that's how you're going to get Trump's absurd, lying <laughs> version of fascism, of populism, to be successful. And Nathan, you know, for me, the death and then funeral of John McCain said everything you need to know about American politics and this empire. The moment where you have the Obamas sitting next to the Bushes and the cute little painter Bush who uh, passes a piece of candy to Michelle Obama, like that was this iconic moment that everyone held up. See, this is what class looks like. This is what America is all about. All the while sitting there pretending that John McCain was not an unrepentant war criminal who called Vietnamese people by the most derogatory term that exists in the English language, that he wasn't one of the biggest warmongers in modern American history. That old Beach Boy song, Bomberan. It's because we're going to win this victory. Tragically, we will lose American lives, but it will be brief. We're going to find out massive evidence of weapons of mass destruction, and we're going to find the incredible brutalities that this that this dictator has inflicted upon the Iraqi people. And so I think that said everything you need to know about the state of institutional politics in this country and the Democrats and the Republicans are on the same team when it comes to core issues of the empire. Well, that was actually a direct quote from Barack Obama. He said, you know, uh, John McCain, you know, whatever our disagreements were, I always knew that we were on the same team. We never doubted the other man's sincerity or the other man's patriotism or that when all was said and done, we were on the same team. 
We never doubted we were on the same team. You watch that, you know, the person to the left who opposes everything that John McCain stood for, and you think, wait a second, that's the team you were on? Oh, you know, why did I ever support you if that was your team? Because the whole thing is, wait a second, there are very strong differences of value between us and John McCain. And you could say, you know, I respect what John McCain endured, but that doesn't mean that you're on the same team politically. And that's an extremely important difference. And yeah, it was really worrying uh, seeing the kind of unity and the refusal. I mean, you would think that someone like Barack Obama would say, well, obviously I didn't agree with anything he said. And I've strong criticisms, but you know he died and he served his country and what have you. Um, but Nathan, and, the, the uh, real the real Obama yeah. is going to come in Trump's second term. Then we're going to hear from the real Obama. Finally, finally, we were waiting for his inner self to be released. Well, you know, everyone everyone waited. Then we then we really saw his true self. Then he left office and he said nothing and he started doing paid speaking engagements and hanging out with Bono and Richard Branson. And I thought that sort of told you all you needed to know and then disparaging the left a lot. So, um, But there is this thing where Democrats often accept right-wing premises and I think it's very damaging. I mean, I, that's what I think Bill Clinton did to the party that was so horrifying was to say, no, we're the real party of tough on crime. No, we're the real party of capitalism. We just think capitalism's dysfunctional. And you still see that today. I mean, even Elizabeth Warren does this. She says, I'm a capitalist to my bones. I'm a capitalist. Come on. I believe in markets. What I don't believe in is theft. What I don't believe in is cheating. That's where the difference is. I love what markets can do. I love what functioning economies can do. They reinforce the idea that the right's premises are fundamentally correct. They're not centrist. What they are is everyone unifying around the core right-wing agenda, and that's uh, extremely concerning. Nathan Robinson, thank you so much for being with us on Intercepted. And thank you for having me. Brianna Joy Gray, thank you as well for being with us on Intercepted. It's my pleasure. Nathan Robinson is editor of Current Affairs magazine. He's also the author of Trump, Anatomy of a Monstrosity. Brianna Joy Gray is The Intercept's senior politics editor. She's also a contributing editor at Current Affairs. And that does it for this week's show. If you are not yet a sustaining member of Intercepted, log on to theintercept.com slash join. Intercepted is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. We're distributed by Panoply. Our producer is Jack Desidoro, and our executive producer is Letal Molad. Laura Flynn is associate producer. Elise Swain is our assistant producer and graphic designer. Emily Kennedy does our transcripts. Rick Kwan mixed the show. Our music, as always, was composed by DJ Spooky. Until next week, I'm Jeremy Scahill. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 